Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. I welcome uh, Joey Parsons here today. Uh, he didn't ask to be recognized, but uh, a son of this church that uh, is planting a church in Colorado. And uh, Ginger, okay, we welcome you. Uh, he's, uh, they're here visiting the folks. So glad to have you and we continue to pray for blessings upon your church in uh, Colorado. William Miller converted to Christianity. And then he began a study of the scripture, as so many do. And his particular interest was the book of Daniel. Now, as he studied that, uh, you cannot study it without beginning to think about the end times and the second coming of Christ, and he took that quite seriously. He uh, began to look at some of the numbers there. He saw uh, 2,300 days that uh, the, in the, then the sanctuary would be cleansed and so on. He took those days to be years. He combined that in a uh, somewhat complicated uh, formula with uh, uh, a Bishop Usher's uh, view of uh, when the earth began and so on. And he came up with the date of when Christ would return. March 21st, 1843. He didn't come back then. Nothing happened particularly, although there were, even in that day, you know, without the internet and all of that, there were some 50,000 people that were preparing for it, and there were, as they say, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands that at least took a glance to the sky to see if it was going to happen. When nothing happened, he... Uh, revised at the encouragement of others his schedule, and he came up with, uh, oh, he was actually off a year. But then, March 21st, the next year, Christ did not return. When I was a, a young pastor, I received a book in the mail. As uh, apparently every pastor in our country received the same book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, I'm not making fun of that. You might have that book in your library because 1.4 million other people bought that book, and then 1988 came and went. Edgar Weisnant then wrote... The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. And then he wrote, 23 Reasons Why a Pre-Tribulation Rapture Looks Like It Will Occur on Rosh Hashanah, 1993. And then he wrote, And Now the Earth's Destruction by Fire, Nuclear Bomb Fire, Prediction for 1994. 
So far as I know, he is still writing those books, and there may be some still purchasing those books. Now look, here's the thing, because we don't know these men's hearts. Here's what I want to, I want to give them credit in this way. A zeal for the return of Christ. It might have been somewhat misguided, and yet they had a zeal for the return of Christ. Something that I'm afraid too often we begin to miss is that zeal. Assuming they were sincere. Now, what about the scripture and what it says about the return? In the New Testament, when it talks about the end times, one of the things that uh, I've always taken comfort in, because a lot of those details just escape me in terms of when and what the signs will be and all of those kinds of things, though I have studied them off and on for years. But when you read the New Testament and it talks about the second coming of Christ, inevitably it connects it with an ethical application. In other words, the point of what it says in the New Testament about the second coming is not so that we can figure out exactly when it will be, but so that we will be ready whenever it is. If it is imminent, if it could happen at any point, what should that mean to us? And it seems to me that's how the New Testament writers approached the subject. They talked about signs, no question about it. But always, it would have an impact upon our life. The fact of Jesus' return should affect our behavior today. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we read this passage in James, as we're working our way through uh, this book of James We'll begin with verse 7 today in James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, today, will you give us a, a right perspective on these times we are in that will end at some point?
on the second coming. We have sung of the glory of that. We have spoken of it. Will you teach us, Lord, what it means for us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If, in fact, the fact of Jesus' uh, return, his second coming, should have an effect on our lives, what does the scripture say that effect should be? Well, it depends on what passage you are in, but the passage before us gives us four things. James stresses four areas that because Jesus is coming back, these are things that should be different for us as believers. He says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. That's the first one, our patience, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives the reason why, and he illustrates it with something that they could relate to in that particular society they could understand. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he gives this definite reason. Now, uh, when I was in Pennsylvania, and even before that, when I was in seminary, I worked in a, a church in southern Illinois, and uh, both of those churches had a number of farmers. Some of you grew up on farms. You know exactly. This illustration makes perfect sense to you. Because what, what we would see is that for the farmers who had uh, gone through a drought like we've just been through, you know what they could do about it? Nothing. They couldn't do anything about it except pray. They understood, they conceded that if rain's going to come, it's got to come from God. And so they waited. And they would wait, as it says, for that first rain. That's not enough. The early rains, those are important. In fact, in the winter time, the the farmers, you know, people would, in some parts of the country, they'd be complaining about the, the snow. The farmers never complained about the snow because the snow became moisture and, and water and it, it made the earth uh, moist and that was a good thing. So it was the, the early rain and then they still had to wait. That wasn't enough. The later rains and then after that, they could begin to hope for the harvest. And that's what he says. He says, that, that's how we really need to be. Because there is something coming. Christ is coming. Now, what's that going to look like? What, what difference is that going to make when he comes? Let me give you a, a different angle. We, we hear from James. He says, you need to be patient. 
Let me give you the angle from the Apostle Paul. He tells us about what our incentive ought to be in Romans 8. He says this. I want to read this paragraph. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what he's saying is, look, there there is something coming and it is, it is wonderful, and it puts our present sufferings into their right perspective. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. You see what he's saying? He's saying all of this this earth, we live in a fallen world. And it's sighing. It's, ah. You ever sit down just, you know, as you sit down and go, oh. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, it's groaning and waiting for something better. We know that the whole creation has been growing, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And this, this is how he ends it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what Paul is saying, what James has said, is look, things that are going on right now, the kind of uh, deterioration that we see in ourselves and in a fallen world, the, the disease, the kinds of things that just make us groan, Those are going to be over with. And when he comes, there will be a sigh of relief from the whole of creation. And we who are his people, we who are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, will know the fullness of what it means to be adopted as children of the living God. And so he says, be patient, because that's what's coming. Everything will be okay when he comes back for the believer. Now there's a second aspect closely related, and that is our contentment. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, who'd have thought, if you're thinking of the the big things to tell people about the second coming of Christ, who's going to think grumbling is one of those big problems? (laughs) And yet, that's what he says. That that word grumble there is, again, it's like a, 
a, a groaning or sighing, but in a, a negative sense because you are aiming it at others. It's easy to be content and have a contentment when things are going your way. But he's talking about, and he's talking to people who are in very difficult times. He's not talking to people where everything is going their way. And he's saying, look, stop grumbling against one another. It ought not to be the way we treat each other. Now, does that mean that Christians can never disagree with each other? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course we can disagree. We're going to disagree about things. But he's talking about it in, in another category. You see, there's a way to deal with disagreements, and the Scripture gives us guidelines for that, how we ought to do that, go directly to a person and that kind of a thing. But this whole idea of grumbling is, is not the uh, biblical way of dealing with something. And, and here's, here's the bottom line in this. If God is indeed sovereign, he is in control. And all of these things in our life, you often hear me say, every, everyone and everything in your life is there in order to make you more like Jesus. If that's true, then what does it mean when you're grumbling against one another? I don't like this. You know, it's a figurative kind of stomping. I don't like this. It's a childish thing. It's a dealing with it in that way, a pouting kind of thing. He's addressing these people that are in these difficult circumstances and saying, look, don't be, don't be uh, doing that against one another. That is not to be what characterizes the way believers deal with life. And then he tells them why. He says, look, Jesus, the, the, the judge is standing at the door. So it's not just having a little bracelet on that says, what would Jesus do? But it is knowing that he's actually looking at what's going on. And so it is legitimate to evaluate how we treat one another, how we talk to one another and say, you know, would I, would I do that if Jesus were standing right here? Would I be saying this to that person in this way. Because then when you evaluate it, you know, if Jesus were here, the point is, he is. You are accountable for things you say. And so he cautions us in that way. John Calvin said, no bridle is more suited to holding back our headstrong temper than the thought that our imprecation, that means our griping, does not go off into the air, but close at hand, and the judge is listening. You get it? He says that, that ought to hold us back 
from treating other people that way. Because the one who judges actions is listening and watching. Ultimately, grumbling against brothers is grumbling against God. The fact that Jesus is coming again should affect, thirdly, our steadfastness. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Because God is compassionate and merciful. See, Job didn't complain in that sense. He saw God as compassionate and merciful even in the midst of his trials. And then in verse 10, it says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Job refused to get angry at, at, at God because of his trials because he understood more of the character of God one of grace and compassion and mercy. And while he could say, I don't get it, I don't understand uh, how these circumstances can fit with that, I do believe in who he is, and that makes a difference. I'm not going to judge who he is by my circumstances. I'm going to judge my circumstances by who he is. And that's the difference. And then he brings the prophets up as the example as well. Those who stood even in the midst of trials. We're going to talk more about steadfastness in a minute. But then the, the fourth area he addresses is integrity. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now this is a little bit puzzling, or it could be, because James has said some very important things. And he has said, you know, with Christ coming, here are things you need to remember. But then he says, but above all, words, most importantly, here's what you need to know. Don't swear oaths on things here in this world, but be a person of integrity so that when you say yes, it's absolutely yes. And when you say no, it is absolutely no. How could he say that's the most important thing? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus even pronounces a woe on those who... Uh, swear by the altar or the temple later in Matthew. Why is it such a big deal? 
I'm convinced it's because here is the place, even beyond all of those other things. You know what? Out in, in the world we live in, some people who aren't Christians are going to be patient. Some people who aren't Christians aren't going to be grumblers. They're going to be fairly content. But the area that will uh, provide opportunity for believers to shine as a light in a world of darkness is this area of being truth-tellers, of integrity. Helmut Dielicki, who was a pastor and a theologian uh, during World War II, He resisted uh, compromising his integrity during the Hitler era. And here's what he wrote. Whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I'm really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floors of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying the people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they're counting on my line, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. You see what he's saying? He's saying when you, when you say something like that, the implication is, okay, you know, I, I lie all the time. But now I swear. Let me tell you uh, how I fell into uh, a habit like that. I used to say, well, I'll be honest with you. Until someone said to me, and I'd never even thought of it. Someone said, oh, so... When you don't say that, does that mean you're not being honest with us? And it was just a habit. It was just something that I'd say, well, I'll be honest with you. But that's the implication. And when, I, when, when the person said that, I thought, oh, yeah, I, I shouldn't be saying that. Because it implies that, uh, oh, okay, well, I better pay attention here then. Like some preachers, uh, you know, they'll say, now listen. And kind of the implication is, well, do I not need to listen unless you say, now listen? Well, that's what uh, Helmut Tillichie is saying there. That we, we don't want to get caught up in that. Words matter. Because we're accountable to him. We must be truth tellers. Radical, consistent, unrestrained truth telling will set the Christian apart in this world. Because those that don't know Christ, few of them will tell the truth if it costs them anything. I'm convinced that's why Jesus and James, why the very word of God says above all, we must be this. Tilicky 
said of his, in his native Germany, the avoidance of one small fib may be a stronger confession of faith than a whole Christian philosophy championed in lengthy, forceful discussion. What he was saying is a truthful spirit's a great evangelistic tool. Now, what, what difference should all of this make that we are people of the coming king? It should make all the difference in the world. If you, if you focus on your circumstances, it will not bring patience. If you focus on yourself, you will lose contentment and you won't remain steadfast. You will grumble if you focus on yourself. If you don't hold to and speak the truth, you will be accountable. But if you focus on the fact of Christ's return, the big picture of his coming again, and you identify yourself as a person of the coming king, you will be more patient, you will be more truthful and faithful. And here's the ultimate comfort, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And as your pastor, that's what I want for you. I want you to be blessed. To remain steadfast until his coming. Historically, there was a rather famous letter written in the early second century. It was from Pliny, who was a Roman governor, and he wrote to the emperor Trajan. And, and he was trying to figure out how to deal with these Christians that he was persecuting. He would bring them to trial, and he couldn't find enough evidence on them in most cases to, to really justify his persecution. Listen to the kind of thing Pliny was dealing with. Christian was brought before him. Finding little fault with him, Pliny decided to threaten him. I will banish thee, Pliny said. You cannot, was the reply. For all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay thee, Pliny said. You cannot, answered the Christian. For my life is hid with Christ. I will take away thy possessions. You cannot, for my treasure is in heaven. I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left, was the final threat. And the reply, you cannot, for I have an unseen friend from whom you are not able to separate me. To remain steadfast in Christ is to be insulated from the threats of this fallen world. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together.